Welcome to church. This week, Pastor Nathan and Hannah are sharing how our emotions shape the perspective we have and how God gave us our emotions. But he wants us to manage them and use them to deepen our walk with him. If you're new here, we'd love to get you connected with our community. You can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or by simply texting hello to 587-323-1199. We will respond right back. I'm so glad you could join us today. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always. And surely I am with you always. And surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. To the very end of the age. Well, hello everyone. Good morning to you. Today we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence, how to manage our emotions and rule them instead of letting them rule us. Our key verse today is Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And we picked this verse for today because it's an opportunity to share how we could take our emotions, we could take what we're experiencing, and we can refocus them. We can use them as a tool for the kingdom. We're going to talk about what the Bible says our emotions and how it relates to ministry callings and interpersonal relationships. Then we're going to talk about how to practically grow our emotional intelligence. To get more specific, the breakdown of our message today is what is emotional intelligence? What does the Bible say about our emotions? What does it have to do with disciples who make disciples? And how do we become more emotionally intelligent on a practical level? What is emotional intelligence? The psychological theory of emotional intelligence, or EQ, which stands for emotional quotient, was originally introduced in 1997 by two researchers, Peter Salovey and John Mayer. They defined it as, and this is a bit of a mouthful, so bear with me, the ability to perceive emotions, to access and generate emotions so as to assist thought to understand emotions and emotional knowledge and to reflectively regulate emotions so as to promote emotional and intellectual growth. One of the other descriptions we came across online says that emotional intelligence refers to the ability to perceive, control, and evaluate emotions. And to break further, we like the definition of Joshua Friedman better. Joshua Friedman is a specialist on emotional intelligence an author, and the chief executive officer of Six Seconds, which is a nonprofit dedicated to emotional intelligence. He says that emotional intelligence is the capacity to blend thinking and feeling to make optimal decisions. It's being smarter with feelings. So from these three different sources and definitions, we see that emotional intelligence is not the elevation of the heart and emotions above the brain, but it's working so that your mind, will, and emotions can work together and congruently. 
We've all met someone who is intelligent and academically gifted, but who is incredibly weak in social skills. And then we've all met someone who is hyper-emotional and either a bit vapid or impulsive. Emotional intelligence is being able to have your emotions and your brain work together. Now, EQ is different from IQ in that as IQ can be used to predict higher academic achievements, EQ can be used to find success in social and emotional situations with yourself and others. EQ helps us to build strong relationships, make good decisions, and deal with difficult situations. One way to think about EQ is that it's part of being people smart, people savvy. Understanding and getting along with people helps us to navigate almost any area and ministry in life. In fact, some studies show that EQ is three times more important than IQ when it comes to being successful at work or in school. And that makes a lot of sense because if you're faced with a stressful workplace situation, like an angry boss or a disappointed client, your EQ can help you be calm, react proportionally, and to see where others around you are coming from. Emotional intelligence is commonly defined by five attributes. And we're going to go over these attributes more and more as we go throughout our time today. First, from what psychology defines them, and then the, how they apply to us disciples who make disciples, and then how we can apply that on a practical level in our lives. So number one is self-awareness. And self-awareness is an ability to evaluate yourself, your actions, your thoughts, and emotions, and understand them as well as their effect on others. If you're highly self-aware, you can objectively evaluate yourself. You can manage your emotions. You can align your behavior with your values and understand how others perceive you correctly. Number two is self-regulation. And self-regulation is the ability to control or redirect your behavior, your emotions, and thoughts to pursue long-term goals and the tendency to think before acting. Descriptors of self-regulated people include trustworthiness and integrity, comfort with uncertainty, and openness to change. Number three is internal motivation. So the desire to work for reasons other than money or prestige. These reasons can be in external incentives, such as an inner vision of what is essential in life, joy in doing something, interest in learning, and a sense of flow that comes with being involved in activity. An internally motivated person would have a strong drive to achieve and be optimistic even in the face of failure. Number four is empathy. The ability to understand another person's emotional composition and treat them based on their emotional responses. And finally, number five is social skills. These are skills that we use to communicate and interact with other people, both verbally and non-verbally. A person who ranks higher on the social skills scale would most likely be good at managing relationships, building networks, and overseeing teams of volunteers. And like I said, we'll cover these sections a bit more later on and how they apply to disciples who make disciples and ministry specifically. So what does the Bible say about emotional intelligence? Well, we know that the phrase emotional intelligence isn't in the Bible specifically, but the Bible does have a lot to say about our emotions and how we sh they should be stewarded and managed in healthy ways. Emotions like sorrow, emotions like anger, emotions like fear and doubt, 
and emotions like joy and happiness are all gone over in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 said, there's a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And Proverbs 15, 18 says that a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms an argument. But on that contrasting note, as we begin to talk about anger, there's also verses that make it clear that anger as an emotion itself isn't bad or sinful. Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And I really like the way that the First Nations version puts it. It says, there are times when anger is the right thing, but do not let your anger turn into rage, for it will burn like a wildfire. Work things out before the sun sets that day. Further still, the Amplified Version, which is a paraphrased version of the Bible, says, be angry at sin, at immorality, at injustice, at ungodly behavior, yet do not sin. Do not let your anger last until the sun goes down. Does injustice make you angry? Does human trafficking make you angry? Does child abuse make you angry? I know that I can be very justice-oriented, and it's easy for me to pick up on somebody else's injustice. We see throughout Scripture that injustice makes God angry. We see references like Proverbs 6, which talks about how God hates that the hands that shed innocent blood. And Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both repulsive to the Lord. We see other verses like Isaiah 10, verse 1, 4, which says, What sorrow awaits the unjust judges and those who issue unfair laws? They deprive the poor of justice and deny deny the rights of the needy among my people. And then John 2 talks about how during Passover, some religious leaders at the time were taking advantage of travelers, and they were taking advantage of them in the temple. So Jesus made a whip and chased the leaders out, flipping tables as he went. You know, it's funny, we've all heard the acronym WWJD before, but I came across this meme on the internet that I thought could be used next time you hear that. So if anyone ever asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. As referenced earlier, we also see from the life of Jesus that there's an appropriate time to weep. I've heard too many stories of Christian guys, Christian men saying, don't cry. That's just not a manly thing to do. Men shouldn't be vulnerable like that. But saying men shouldn't cry contradicts the life and ministry of Jesus. In John 11, we see a grieving crowd tell Jesus about the death of Lazarus. Lazarus was a dear friend to Jesus, and after Jesus is told about his death, we see the shortest verse in the Bible occur. The shortest verse in the Bible is two words, Jesus wept. In John 11:35, it says, Jesus wept. Now, Jesus ended up bringing Lazarus back to life from death, and I believe that in his divinity, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to be brought back to life. But he still felt the loss of a dear friend, and he felt the grief and the loss of the other people that were weeping over Lazarus's death. He empathized with their experience and their emotions that were surrounding the pain of losing a loved one. 
But Jesus didn't stay weeping. His weeping and his emotions moved him to action in an appropriate way. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Um, next, we see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. In Luke 19, we see Jesus weeping for Jerusalem as he later prophesied the destruction that was to come 40 years later. And we see part of that destruction occur with Emperor Titus and his Roman legions. More than a million residents of Jerusalem died in one of the most gruesome sieges recorded in history. Jesus was also weeping because his message of hope and life of personal deep reconciliation with God was being rejected. And he knew that that rejection would bring death. Then there's, a t- there's times when it's appropriate to fear and doubt. I really like the way Jesse Robertson put it during his conversation with Tammy during the Praying Like Jesus stream on our Calvary Community Church Family Facebook group this past week. And Jesse, I should have told you I was going to reference you. But he said, Jesus in his humanity, because remember, Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man, was tempted in every way that we are, but he didn't sin. That he felt fear and doubts as intensely as we have to. Otherwise, his being able to overcome it without sinning wouldn't have really meant all that much. In fact, and we talked about this this past Good Friday, but when Jesus was facing his death in Luke 22, we see him under such extreme stress and anxiety that he sweat blood, which is a condition known as, and I've practiced this like 50 times, hematohydrosis. The National Institute of Health defines this condition as a rare clinical condition of sweating blood occurring when a person is suffering from such extreme duress and stress, for example, when they're facing his or her death. And very few cases have been reported throughout history. And scripture recognizes that we deal with these emotions. The difference is that us as Christians, when we trust God, when we trust our creator, we don't continue to allow them to hold us back. We don't continue to allow our emotions to hold us back. These emotions should produce a response in our lives. You see Jesus going through these emotions and then saying, but not my will, but yours be done. In Psalms 34, 4, which is about David living out in the wilderness, he was running for his life. And David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. And then Psalms 56, 3 to 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And then there's also Psalm 94, 19, which says, When my anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. 1 Peter 5, verse 9 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We see this theme over and over and over again throughout Scripture feeling emotions like fear, doubt, anger, and anxiety, and then bringing it to God in exchange for peace, for comfort, for joy. And I like how the message paraphrase puts Psalm 34, verse 17 to 29. Is anyone crying for help? God is listening, ready to rescue you. If your heart is broken, you'll find God right there. If you're kicked in the gut, he'll help you catch your breath. Disciples so often get into trouble, yet God is still there every time. 
So, so far we've gone over what emotional intelligence is defined as, and then we went over some of what the Bible has to say about our emotions and how we appropriately use them and what we do with them after. But what does it have to do with disciples who make disciples specifically? In Matthew 22, 34 to 40, Jesus is asking the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So how do we love the people that we're discipling? How do we relate to them, empathize with them? How do we make sure that we are guarding our hearts and minds when we're dealing with their brokenness as, own, as well as our own brokenness? Romans 12 verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep those with those who weep. And that's what relates to what we read earlier in Ecclesiastes 3, that there's a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to dance, and a time to mourn. And then 2 Corinthians 1 talks about God comforting us in our pain so that we may be able to comfort those who are in pain using the comfort we received from God. So if we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and bring comfort to those who are in pain with the comfort we ourselves have experienced from God, how can we do that if we don't know how to express our emotions in healthy, productive, and meaningful ways? How can we do that if our emotional intelligence is low? God comforts us in our darkest times so that we are able to have strength to give others help and strength during their worst times. We are called to walk with those that are broken, with those that are scared, with those that are weeping. And James 1 verse 27 says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Earlier we went through five different characteristics of emotional intelligence. Now it's time to come back to them and see how they can relate to the principle of making disciples who make disciples. What they might look like in our small group or ministry settings. First, there's self-awareness. If you're self-aware, you know how your emotions and actions impact those around you. When you're sharing your testimony or resolving conflict, you can name your emotions when they come up and understand why they're there. Freedom Session, which is an internal healing ministry here at Calvary Community Church and, and throughout Canada, tells you that you're not allowed to use the word frustrated, for instance, because frustrated is an incredibly vague term that doesn't specifically identify what you're dealing with. You can also identify your strengths with self-awareness and see your own limitations. This is crucial in ministry. It keeps you from burning out and stepping into areas where you're not gifted. Next is self-regulation. If you can self-regulate, your emotions, emotional reactions are in proportion to the given circumstances. You know how to pause as needed and control your impulses. You think before you act and you consider the consequences. The church is a place of broken people to find healing. But often on that healing journey, people can say very hurtful or hateful things. 
James 1 verse 9 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It also means that you know how to ease tension, manage conflict, cope with difficult scenarios, and adapt to changes in your relationships and ministry. Then there's motivation. Motivation in a ministry sense means you're inspired to accomplish goals because it helps to bring healing, training, and hope and the light of Christ to those around you. The entire purpose of emotional intelligence in a ministry and personal setting is to bring the image of Christ as Christ bearers to the world around you. When you're in ministry, it's tough to feel like going to every event especially when it's in evenings or on the weekends. Motivation means saying, I'm tired and I'll keep an eye on that, but pushing myself to attend when I don't always want to is healthy as well. Empathy is the next characteristic and a crucial part of making disciples who make disciples. If you're empathetic, you can relate to people and understand where someone is coming from and the pain and brokenness they've experienced. So even if the exact scenario hasn't happened to you, you can draw on your testimony experience to imagine how they might be feeling, and then you can show Christ-like compassion about what they're going through. And finally, there's social skills. If you've developed your social skills, you're great at working in teams. You're aware of others and the needs in a conversation or conflict resolution. You're welcoming in conversation and you're using active listening, eye contact, verbal communication skills, and open body language. You know how to develop rapport with others or express leadership. You're the one who can introduce yourself to new visitors at an event in a small group or in the foyer when it's uncomfortable for other people. Unfortunately, something we see too often in church circles, especially small to medium-sized church circles, is someone new will come in and our typical church and congregation cliques will stand around talking with, with themselves and they won't go and introduce themselves to this person and make them feel welcome. And just because that skill may not come naturally to everyone, it doesn't give us as an excuse not to grow in that area. So how do we become emotionally intelligent? How do we practically become emotionally intelligent? So far, we've talked about what emotional intelligence is, what the Bible has to say about how we manage and express our emotions, what our emotions have to do with making disciples who make disciples. And our final section is going to be about how we can practically implement and grow in our emotional intelligence. Remember that in the context of making disciples who make disciples, All of this is hinged on reaching and loving others. 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We could have all of the tools in the handbook memorized and researched, rehearsed, but without the love of those, or without the love for those around us, it becomes just like any other self-improvement exercise. For these practical steps, we're going to be pulling resources and applying them in a ministry context. These tips include resources from ePsychiatry Telehealth Network, Psych Central, the Very Well Mind Board of Physicians and Psychiatrists, the nonprofit organization Help Guide, the Mind Tools Network, Freedom Session, and a slew of other ministries and churches. 
So let's start with the first criteria, self-awareness. One of the best tips for self-awareness is to keep a journal. It can be extremely helpful to keep a journal. I'm terrible at keeping a journal. I have a journal, and you can see where I filled it in a few months here and there over the last 10 years. Freedom Session does a great job explaining why it's important to journal through an emotion or experience you seem to be struggling with, especially when you don't know why you're struggling with it. Sometimes we have a person that comes to mind over and over again that we feel bitterness towards, and we don't know why. We can't put a reason to it, and journaling helps with that. It helps unpack what you're feeling and when you might have felt that way before in your life. And if you spend just a few minutes each day praying and writing down your thoughts, this can move you to a higher degree of self-awareness. This can allow you to reflect on how you behaved in certain interactions and make a note of things that bothered you. You can go back and read over them from time to time and study yourself. Next is self-regulation. How can you improve your ability to self-regulate? Hold yourself accountable. If you tend to blame others when something goes wrong, stop. Make a commitment to admit to your mistakes and face the hurdles, whatever they may be. When it comes to sin, it's especially important to set up accountability in your life. I've heard this with pornography, for instance, over and over again. Both men and women have tried to stop for years on their own, and it's not until they add accountability to their life that it begins to make a difference. Remember, accountability is not just sharing when you've messed up, when you've dropped the ball, but reaching out to someone when you start to feel tempted before you give into it. Practice being calm. The next time you're in a stressful situation, Oops. <laughs> <laughs> be very aware of how you act. Do you try to escape your stress by taking it out on someone else? Or on a practical, uh, one way that you can practically let your stress go in a healthy way is to write down all of the negative things that you want to say and then just sit on it for a little while. Expressing these emotions are on paper or in a draft email, for instance, is better than being impulsive and sending it out or saying it to someone you're working with and causing hurt or division. Typically, usually when I'm feeling stressed or frustrated with someone in ministry, I'll type up a draft email and let it sit in my inbox for a few days until I feel like I've calmed down and are viewing things clearer. If it's still bothering me later, I'm able to go back and reword it to sound less rant-like and more constructive. This week, I made the huge mistake of sending off an email while I was feeling stressed, and I ended up having to send an apology email later on. <laughs> now we're on to self-motivation. So re-examine why you're involved in making disciples who make disciples. When others are difficult to work with or someone is having a difficult time working through their brokenness, it is easy to forget why you're involved in ministry or even about your role in ministry. Take some time to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to remind you why you, you're called to ministry. Reevaluate your goals, and if you haven't set goals, make sure that you set goals for your ministry. 
Self-regulation is especially important when it comes to monitoring your levels of exhaustion and emotional fatigue. Sometimes we can experience called empathy fatigue or clergy fatigue, where we end up being numb because we're dealing so much with all these different stories and all these different situations of brokenness. And to self-regulate means being able to step back and take a time to rest and recuperate. In other terms of self-regulation, our church is still going through a vitalization process, which is a healthy way to, for our church to continue to grow and flourish. And it's determining and has determined how many people we want to reach each year in our community, how many people we want to see saved each year and more. In order for our church and ministry to self-regulate, we've set goals for ourselves to reach. The next step is to be hopeful and find something good. Motivated leaders are usually optimistic no matter what problems they face. Adopting this mindset might take practice, but it's well worth the effort. Practice thankfulness and gratitude. For those of you who can endlessly scroll through social media, find social media pages that share good news or positive stories that are happening from around the world. So often we're inundated with these negative news stories and statistics that we often forget to check the pulse of the world in terms of what God's doing in it. Next is how can we improve our empathy? So we ask the Holy Spirit how he sees someone. And this can help you understand someone else's point of view and position and things from their perspective. Practice throughout the day looking at situations from other people's perspectives. Really, really, really practical level. Pay attention to body language. This can really help you be welcoming or communicate physically that you're listening. Don't cross your arms. Maintain eye contact, but don't stare because that'll freak someone out really quick. Make eye contact and put down your phone. Respond to their feelings. Acknowledge someone's hurt or frustration when they're sharing with you. Why is this person feeling that way? Are there unseen factors that might be contributing to these feelings? Reflect back what they're saying and reword it to show that you understand where they're coming from. For example, if you're at small group and someone has been wounded by their father in the past and they share that they are hurt because their father didn't call them on their birthday, you could say, that's really difficult that he didn't make the effort to wish you a happy birthday. Some of these tips sound like total common sense, but you'd be surprised at how many of us don't consistently implement them in our day-to-day -day interactions with those around us which brings us to social skills. Social skills involves learning conflict resolution. Disciple makers must know how to resolve conflict. This not only helps you to clarify misunderstandings or hurts in a ministry setting, but allows you to act as a mediator between upset individuals. It's not always clear what the conflict is about, and this is why prayer is the most important thing when it comes to all of these steps. Being able to take a step back to calm down, but more importantly, to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to what's happening behind the scenes or in somebody's past or in your past. Reiterate what the upset person or group is feeling. Say you understand where they're coming from and ask what could be done to fix it. 
healthy compromise and middle grounds are often a great way to make sure people work together in the long run. And remember, our first response to conflict should always be prayer. Learn how to encourage others. When you notice something someone has done well, or you notice a particular gifting in their life, let them know. Share that with them. If you feel like the Holy Spirit is pointing out something encouraging, share that with them. And finally, listen. If you want to understand what other people are feeling, the first step is to pay attention and listen. Take the time to listen to what other people are sharing with you, both verbally and non-verbally. When you sense that someone is feeling a certain way, consider the different factors or situations that might be contributing to that emotion. James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. To end today, we need to specify that it's rare to find someone that is gifted in all of these areas. We're all required to make disciples who make disciples, but it isn't a journey you go on alone, and IQ alone is not going to cut it. It'll burn you out, it'll burn more people out, and that's why EQ and IQ, your emotions, your heart, your brain, have to work together. When it comes to ministry, your emotional awareness, your emotional intelligence is a powerful ministry tool to not only pray, encourage, and listen to others, but it's a tool to become more Christ-like yourself. It helps to steward and sharpen your mind and to get to know the Holy Spirit's voice more and more. I'm going to pray with you as we finish today. Father, as we recognize that our emotions are something you've given us, that Jesus in his human state, as he was both 100% man and 100% God, struggled with the same emotions we struggle with, that he was tempted in all of the areas we're tempted with, and yet he did not stumble, he did not fall. We just ask that we would continue to sharpen our minds, we would continue to grow our emotional intelligence, our EQ, in tandem with our IQ, that both being academically gifted and people-oriented are key to advancing your kingdom here on earth. But above all, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide our emotions. Father, we ask that as we experience these emotions, that we wouldn't be stuck in them. That low emotional intelligence is when we experience these emotions and get stuck in them. But instead, our emotions would push us to action, push us to healthy action, Father. Whether that's casting our anxieties on you, giving over our fear or doubt, or having a righteous anger, a righteous indignation instead of a physical human rage. We ask that you'd be present in our lives, that we'd be able to implement these steps as we head out from here today. In your name we pray. Amen. Something we do at the end of each message here at CCC is to offer an opportunity for anyone that might be feeling a pull or nudge towards God, having a relationship with our Creator, to take the first step. If you felt alone, or if you felt like you were born for something more, born for a calling, born for something greater than this, and you've never invited Christ into your life, we're going to have an opportunity to do that this morning. This opportunity will bring you into family and a community that walks alongside you through the good times and the really difficult times. 
a family and community that will help you find healing in God, in your brokenness. And more importantly, it establishes a relationship with the King of Kings in your life. I'm going to pray in a few seconds. And if this is something you want you to do, I, I just want you to repeat after me. If this is something you want to do. Sorry, of course I want you to do it. But this is something you want to do. I want you to repeat after me. But before I do, this isn't a prayer you should take lightly. It's a commitment to something greater than yourself or any one of us. But it's the most important and life-giving commitment you'll ever make. The core of Christianity is that humanity in our free will chose to be apart from our creator. And God giving us that free will allowed us to do that. He still continues to offer free will to us today. But the result of separating ourselves from God is a physical and spiritual death. One of the examples I like to use is that if we chose to start smoking, we know that smoking in the majority of cases causes cancer. So we start smoking and then after we are diagnosed with cancer. But someone comes up to us, someone who has never smoked before, and they say, I'll take the cancer for you and die instead of you so that you can live. When it comes to Christianity, the person who takes the cancer of sin for us, who dies instead of us, even though they've never smoked, never sinned, is Jesus. He died the physical and spiritual death for us so that we could have life, so that we could be reunited with our creator, but it's our choice. So I'm going to pray a prayer now, and if you're wanting to make that choice today, I want you to repeat after me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me and coming back to offer me life. Even though you never sinned, and I'm the one who sins, you chose to die for me anyway. I'm sorry for the sin in my life, and I want to give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, we want you to text 587-323-1199, because we don't want you to be alone on this journey. We want to engage with you. We want to work with you through this process. Let's all stand as we sing one more worship song for today. Thanks for joining us. If you need anything, do not hesitate to contact us. You can find more information on our website or on Facebook, YouTube, and on Instagram. We'll see you again soon.